You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode number 83. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you for listening, especially to all the new listeners. Thank you for giving me your time and attention. I know it's valuable and I value it. So thank you. I am grateful that you're taking the time to listen. That being said, then you can subscribe. You can support the podcast at Anchor FM. Click the support button. Every dime that you uh, donate to the show goes back into improving the show, hardware, software, resources, research, everything that I do to put the show together week to week. And to those of you who have already done that, thank you so very much. You know who you are. And I truly appreciate all that you do to help me make this podcast a reality. So that being said, then, as I alluded to on Instagram yesterday, we are going to read Chuck Palahniuk's book, Fight Club, because why not? I've been talking about it and using it as an example as we've read through Nietzsche these past several months. And there is a lot of commentary about Fight Club, both the novel and the movie, on YouTube. You can go track those down if you want. There's some excellent breakdowns. I've watched a lot of them. I'm not claiming that I'm going to contribute anything unique to the conversation that hasn't already been put out there. I just wanted to read it and cover it with y'all because I've been talking about it so much. I thought maybe if you're still on the fence or you're reluctant or you've just never thought to read Fight Club before, this would be an introduction for you to help you make up your mind one way or the other. So that being said, before we begin, I do have to add the disclaimer that this is Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. And if you're not familiar with Chuck, he writes in a very blunt and a very honest prose. And the language sometimes may not be for everyone's liking. So if you're listening to this in the car with your kids in the back seat, or at home or wherever it may be, every once in a while, the subject matter and or the language may not necessarily be suitable for all children and maybe not even for some adults. So that being said, you've been warned. Otherwise, let's dive into it. Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Bob's big arms were closed around to hold me inside, and I was squeezed in the dark between Bob's new sweating tits that hang enormous, the way we think of gods as big. Going around the church basement full of men each night we met, this is art, this is Paul, this is Bob. Bob's big shoulders made me think of the horizon. Bob's thick, blonde hair was what you get when hair cream calls itself sculpting moose. So thick and blonde, and the part is so straight. His arms wrapped around me. Bob's hand palms my head against the new tits sprouted on his barrel chest. It will be all right, Bob says. You cry now. From my knees to my forehead, I feel chemical reactions within Bob burning food and oxygen. Maybe they got it all early enough, Bob says. Maybe it's just seminoma. With seminoma, you have almost a 100% survival rate. Bob's shoulders inhale themselves up in a long draw, then drop, drop, drop in jerking sobs. Draw themselves up, drop, drop, drop. I've been coming here every week for two years, and every week Bob wraps his arms around me, and I cry. You cry, Bob says, and inhales and sobs. Sob, sobs. Go on now, cry. 
The big, wet face settles down on top of my head, and I am lost inside. This is when I'd cry. Crying is right at hand in the smothering dark, closed inside someone else, when you see how everything you can ever accomplish will end up as trash. Anything you are ever proud of will be thrown away, and I am lost inside. This is as close as I've been to sleeping in almost a week. So from the very beginning of the book, this is chapter two. And chapter one is almost a prefatory introduction to the book, somewhat of a preface that sets up the narrator for us, the last man. When we dive into chapter two, then we dive right into, well, Bob's big arms, actually. In fact, it's all capital letters and bold-faced font, Bob's big arms. Bob, as the narrator describes, is God, is the horizon, is the all-encompassing darkness that swallows our narrator. It is the only place that he is free to cry, to let his emotions out, to feel anything, actually. And yet, as we are about to discover, the narrator is a fraud. He is so starved for human contact so starved for acceptance, for any kind of emotional interface with himself and with others, that he is willing to lie about his true motives for being here in this group with Bob and Art and Paul and others. For him, for the narrator, Bob is God, but a hidden kind of God. Not a God that reveals himself to us in a specific way. This is not the God of the Bible, for example, the God of Christianity that shows up and says, Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the Christ. I'll be dying for your sins and raising, you know, rising from the dead for your justification. So anything you need to know about me, just keep reading. This is not that God. This is a God who hides himself. This is a God who is like the horizon. This is a God who swallows us up in darkness. A God who is with us, and yet we are with him for ulterior motives. This is not a one-to-one -one interaction. This is not a relationship that we have with ourselves, with others, or with this kind of God that hides himself from us, that we have to go seeking some sort of solace, some sort of comfort in the arms of another man, in this instance, Bob, because we can't find God. We can't find peace. We can't even find an emotional connection to ourselves. That's how disconnected, dehumanized we've become as a society. When Palinik wrote this in the 90s, it was a time of rampant, raging consumerism. Not that today is any different. But at that time, in the 90s, in fact, I just watched a documentary, a short documentary on YouTube about this this morning. All of the cartoons had to have the word extreme in them. Products had to have the word X or extreme in them. The X games were invented in the 90s. Everything had to be extreme. And consumerism, therefore, was extreme. It was pushed to the extremities of reason and logic and also emotionalism. Nothing could simply be a cup of tea or coffee. Nothing could simply be a hamburger or a hot dog. No relationship could be 
just a normal, ordinary relationship. It had to be extreme. Everything had to be pushed to the edge. And so in the context of this book, then, consumerism pushed men and women to the extremes. But at those edges, where everything was about consuming, digesting, defecating, repeating, people finally woke up to the fact that we ourselves are not just consumers, but we are those who are consumed. We consume products that we buy, and then other people consume us as a product. And this, for many people, especially in the context of the book, for men, it ended up making men feel emasculated, lost within society, that our entire purpose for existence, this is true of men and women and also children, that our only purpose for existing was to consume all of these products that were being sold to us 24-7 to the extent that then we ourselves became a product, which is really how social media became a thing. Social media is we construct and create a product, we consume other people's products, and then the people that run the platform capitalize literally on the production that we make and consume to sell us. And they sell our information to third parties. So we make the content, we consume the content, and then we become the source of revenue for those who control the platform. So in the 90s, this started to emerge, and by the 2000s then, with MySpace and then Facebook and then Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and and on and on, we slowly but surely became the product. So that we are just one more idea, one more product in a marketplace of ideas and products. Human beings that are now consumable. And as a consequence, It left men feeling emasculated. It left men feeling like they had no real purpose, nothing to contribute to society other than just their ability to consume a product. And even in the present tense then, the reason that we have such a low value, such low esteem for both children, young children, babies, and elderly people is because they are not the core demographic for these multinational corporations that sell us all these products. Infants are not consumers. Their parents have to buy for them. So therefore, they don't have as much inherent value as an adult age 18 to 38 does. Elderly people, especially elderly over the age of 60, have almost no value whatsoever to mainstream culture, which is why you can put people with COVID in nursing homes, kill people in nursing homes, kill the elderly, kill the handicapped, kill those who are physically and mentally handicapped, And society barely registers what's happening, barely pays attention to it, both in the United States and in Great Britain and Europe. The elderly people are being euthanized. There's over 42 to 44 million abortions recorded every year. We don't care, culturally speaking. We don't care about infants or elderly people nearly as much as we care about those in that core demographic 18 to 38. Why? Because that core group of people ages 18 to 38 are the consumers. They're the buyers of the product. They're the ones who pad the retirement and pension plans of Fortune 500 CEOs. Therefore, they have much more value 
within our culture because it's a consumer capitalist culture than infants and elderly people do, or those who are mentally or physically unable to be a part of that herd of consumers. What's the purpose of life? Consume, consume some more, forget that you've already consumed this, forget that it's poisoning you, forget that it's killing you, forget that it's emasculating you, forget that it degrades you, dehumanizes you, forget all of that. That's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to consume and to be happy and to enjoy all of the pleasures and delights that Amazon can offer. That's the purpose of life. Don't question it. Don't push back against it. Don't try to break free from it. Accept this is the purpose and the goal of life. This is the trajectory of your life. Consume, consume, consume. And let others tell you what is best for you, what is good for you, how to think, how to speak, how to act. This is the consequence of slave morality, if we go back to Nietzsche. This is why we see most of culture in the West being comprised of the last man and the untermensch, the underman, the beta male. And so Bob's big arms represent God to the narrator, represent comfort and warmth, nothingness. In a sense, the narrator, the last man, is a nihilist because he has nothing left to believe in. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in the possibility of a future where he can be happy and satisfied with life. Because as he says, anything that you are ever proud of will be thrown away. And I am lost inside, lost inside of Bob's big arms. Why? Because everything you can ever accomplish will end up as trash. This is nihilism 101. In a certain sense, it's also fatalistic, which goes hand in hand with nihilism. Is that there's no God. There's no significant human interaction engagement there's no satisfaction with himself, and therefore, the only way he can interface with others, the only way he can feel genuine emotions is to lie about who he is and what his intent and motives are to get into the support group. Because at heart, at root, he believes nothing that he does matters. Nothing that he contributes to society matters because everything is simply consumed, shot out, and repeated. Never-ending process. Before you were here, people were doing it. Now you're doing it. And after you're gone, people will continue to do it, and you will be forgotten. Again, you don't matter as a human being. The only thing about you that is important, that has a, any lasting value, is your ability to consume, forget, and continue to consume. This is why you can see something on the news Two months can go by, something contradictory will show up on the news, it contradicts the previous story, and no one remembers what was said two months ago. Because we're trained from birth, we're taught in public schools, everything about commercials, television programs, therefore programming, movies, pop culture, everything about popular culture is tailor-made to indoctrinate us into a mindset of amnesia. We are members of the United States of Amnesia. Consume this, but don't ever think for a second, especially for yourself. Don't remember, we actually sold you something opposite of this last year, right? Just buy the phone. Pay no attention to the fact that this is the same as the other phone. 
we just beveled the edges a little bit more and, and took off 0.003% of the previous weight. No, this is a brand new phone because this one, well, this one comes in pink. Forget that every generation has their blonde bombshells. Forget what pop culture does to their blonde bombshells. Every generation has corrupt politicians who lie, cheat, steal, and murder to get to where they're at. But ignore all that. Forget all that. Focus on the present tense. These politicians are different. These thought influencers, these cultural influencers are different. Forget. Consume. Maintain a state of amnesia. And so the narrator says, this is as close as I've been to sleeping in almost a week. The only way I can sleep at night, the only way I can feel emotions, real emotions, is to put myself out there, project myself out onto the world as someone that I'm not. Because otherwise, I can't find acceptance. I can't interface with other people because I don't even know who I am. So then he continues, this is how I met Marla Singer. Bob cries because six months ago his testicles were removed. Then hormone support therapy. Bob has tits because his testosterone ration is too high. Raise the testosterone level too much, your body ups the estrogen to seek a balance. And this is when I'd cry because right now your life comes down to nothing. It's not even nothing. Oblivion. That's the darkness he's talking about. That's what he experiences when Bob wraps him up in his arms. He experiences oblivion. But at least in his experience of oblivion, there's peace. There's human contact. There's something and not nothing. Too much estrogen, you get bitch tits. It's easy to cry when you realize that everyone you love will reject you or die. On a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone will drop to zero. Bob loves me because he thinks my testicles were removed too. Everything about this opening statement, this setup to what's about to happen shows the inner and outer turmoil of our narrator. Is that on the outside, he has to pretend to be a survivor of testicular cancer. On the inside, he feels nothing, which is why he's there. And therefore, to the narrator, what he's doing, it's not morally evil. It's not wrong. He knows what he's doing. He's aware of why he's doing it. But he needs to do it, if for nothing else, so that he can sleep at night. There have been times in my life, especially when I was younger, where I would stay up for days and I couldn't sleep. The main reason was because I had become hopeless in those times. And I don't mean depressed. I mean hopeless. And there's a big difference as I've experienced. I've been depressed before. I've been sad. I felt like my life was meaningless, that there was no purpose to my life. I've felt like the narrator before. But to be hopeless, to experience what used to be called melancholy. When I was depressed, I imagined futures in which I was not depressed or more depressed. But there was still a future for me to imagine. When I say I was hopeless, I mean I attempted to see the future and there was nothing there. There was zero. My brain 
was incapable in those moments of seeing a future where I was there. And so I would stay up for days and days. Sometimes when I was really, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, I would self-medicate and, and do drugs to kill that feeling in me to just ride it out by taking speed or downers, opiates, narcotics, whatever was at hand, copious amounts of whiskey. But in those times when I didn't have access to alcohol and drugs, like when I lived in Louisiana in 89 and 90, and I would sit on the couch in my friend's apartment and he'd be asleep in bed because he worked early in the morning. I would just sit there listen to music, watch TV, whatever was on at night. But I couldn't sleep because to me in those moments, to sleep would be to squander what little life I have left. Because at that point, I was 19, 20 years old. By the time I was 21, I knew because of my choices, because of my lifestyle, I was not going to live past 24 or 25 that by 20, 21 years old, I had reached terminal velocity in relation to my mortality. And therefore, at that time, when I was 19, 20 years old, 18, 19, thereabouts, I was already kind of riding the crest of this wave of nihilism. I had broken up with my high school sweetheart. I had moved away from home for the first time in a significant way. Didn't really have a job the second time I moved to Louisiana. There wasn't a lot going for me at that time in my life. And I went from being depressed and sad about the state of my life to becoming hopeless. There was no future. And therefore, I also, like the narrator, became a pathological liar. I would tell people different stories about myself. I would make up lies to make my life seem more dramatic, more exciting and interesting, because it wasn't. I lived with my friend in Monroe, Louisiana. I didn't have a job. Didn't have friends. Didn't have a future. Didn't know where I was going in life. Was just kind of going through the motions day to day. And as a consequence, I felt like my life was meaningless. That there was no reason for me to be alive because I didn't feel love. I didn't feel connected to others. Even though I lived with my best friend at the time, Dennis... I didn't really feel connected to anybody, not my friends, not my family, nobody. And it wasn't their fault. It wasn't anything that they did or didn't do. At that time, my friend, Dennis, allowed me to live with him rent-free. He paid for groceries. He did everything that he could to essentially take care of me as if I were a child. Because I think mentally and emotionally at that time, I was. I was still functionally 15 or 16 years old. And... So it wasn't anything that they did. I wasn't a victim. I wasn't, it wasn't like I was sitting there saying, oh, poor me. It was that I created and constructed a narrative of myself for myself and for others that resulted in portraying myself as, oh, poor me. I was abused growing up. I'm a victim. I just need help. And once I constructed that narrative and kept pushing it and propagating it and nurturing it expanding upon it, the more outlandish the lies became and the more, therefore, I came to loathe myself for having to lie to get the kind of attention that I craved. And it became this circular 
pattern of finding someone, engaging them, lying to them, creating this narrative about myself, portraying myself in a certain way to them so that they would pity me, they would show charity to me, they would take me in and take care of me. And then I resented them for that because I resented myself. And so even the people that I loved, I loved because I was greedy for attention and I was greedy to possess other people's attention in such a way that they would just give me whatever I wanted, which also creates a sense of entitlement on the back end of that, of course. So then when you don't have that, then you do feel like you're a victim because you created a scenario in which you basically victimize yourself. And the only way that I broke out of that hopelessness, which took years and years and years to finally figure out, was one, get clean and sober. That was the beginning. But then it still took me about mm, 15 years to climb out of that. And that mentality and that habit that I had developed for myself that I built up over years, this cycle of self-defeating behaviors and self-defeating thinking about myself that up until even six, seven years ago, especially in the winter months, I would go through bouts of melancholy that sometimes lasted for a month or more. And like I said to my wife, when it would happen, it's like a storm. I see it coming, but there's nothing I can do to stop it. And it's going to be here. Maybe it's a day. Maybe it's a month. And then all of a sudden, it'll just keep moving on and I'll be fine again. But during that time when I'm hopeless, I will be playing the part of the character named Donovan Riley because I'm just going through the motions. And it's not as if I'm suicidal. I'm not. I wasn't. It wasn't depression. I wasn't depressed. I was simply hopeless. I had simply given up hope for the future. And it wasn't a matter of whether I was a Christian or not, whether I believed in God or not, whether I was happily married or not, whether I had a job or not. Before and after everything I just named, I would experience these bouts of hopelessness. And it was only through comprehending that I had to fight against those moments coming over me, that I had to prepare for the storm to show up and then take those steps that are necessary. This is why I actually became a Stoic and got into Stoicism to begin with, because it was really reading Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius that showed me a way out of my melancholy, my hopelessness, and reading books like The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday reading Extreme Ownership by Jocko, listening to his podcast, listening to others push and motivate me to get out of my own head, to get out of this cycle of self-defeating thinking and behavior and recognizing in the moment you have a choice to push back against this hopelessness, this melancholy, this storm that's come over you. You have a choice to punch at it and knock it out before it gets a hold of you. And it took a long time for me not only to recognize when the moment was right to strike back against that hopelessness, but also then to walk away from it, to, to untangle myself from it. It took years, probably two or three years, so that now I don't experience it at all. But a big part of it, of escaping it, was what do I want to do? What gives me a sense of satisfaction? What am I passionate about? Do that. Repeatedly do that. 
Martial arts, yes. <laughs> Improving yourself as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a man, yes. Opening your own gym, yes. Competing, yes. Changing your diet and exercise patterns, yes. Changing the people that you surround yourself with, yes. It was a constant systematic breaking down of all of those things that were in place that contributed to my hopelessness. And then eventually, once I had separated myself out, it's like getting rid of all the sugar and processed carbohydrates in your house. You don't just do it all at one time. You don't try and drink the whole ocean at one time. You simply start replacing all of the sugar and all the processed carbohydrates with nutritive, dense foods. You replace all of these things with things that are good for you. And then slowly but surely, as a byproduct of changing your diet, your sleep patterns improve. Your mood changes. Your desire to get out and exercise changes. It's the same way when it comes to melancholy, hopelessness, when it comes to nihilism. You have to take steps and make the choice for yourself and recognize I have control over how I respond to these feelings. When these emotions start to overwhelm me, I have a choice about how I let them affect me. As Nietzsche said, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. How you suffer is a choice. And once I recognized that for myself, I was able to finally take agency over my own life and over that area of my life and push back against it and then begin to build a wall against it. Almost like those avalanche breaks that they construct in the mountains. That's what I had to do to overcome these bouts of hopelessness, of melancholy that would come over me so that now they don't happen. And when they do start to happen, I can immediately recognize them and stop them from overwhelming me and taking over my life. So now I have twinges of hopelessness now and then, but I don't have days or months where I suffer from this. So if you have experienced this for yourself, these bouts of hopelessness, of melancholy, there is a way out. It just takes a lot of work and recognizing you do have a choice and you do have to make sacrifices and you do have to replace a lot in your life that is contributing to this cycle of hopelessness that you're experiencing. But that ultimately, you have to be honest with yourself about who you are and then make the necessary changes to who you are. As we talk about all the time, you have to kill the person that you were. You have to destroy the lesser version of yourself that was yesterday. So that today you can look over your shoulder at yesterday and say, I learned a lot from the person I was yesterday. And now I'm a stronger version of that person today. So that I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I don't have anything to be depressed about. I don't have any reason to be hopeless. Because I have filled my life with things that give me hope, both in the present tense and for the future. Because you have to recognize the Marlas in your life, so to speak, which we're about to find out about Marla. You have to recognize who the Marla singers are in your life, and you have to get rid of them. Because they are cancerous. They will emasculate you. They will dehumanize you. That could be what you're being sold, both by these multinational corporations, or by your neighbors, or by your family, or even by those people that say they love you. Even yourself. So Bob lost his testicles and then 
was pumped full of too much testosterone, which created too much estrogen, which is why he has, as the narrator says, he's got bitch tits. So Bob loves me because he thinks my testicles were removed. And around us in the Trinity Episcopal basement with the thrift store plaid sofas are maybe 20 men and only one woman. All of them clung together in pairs, most of them crying. Some pairs leaned forward, heads pressed ear to ear, the way wrestlers stand locked. The man with the only woman plants his elbows on her shoulders, one elbow on either side of her head, her head between his hands, and his face crying against her neck. The woman's face twists off to one side, and her hand brings up a cigarette. Notice how the narrator sets this up. The men are behaving, and I'm using tropes here, I'm using cliches, I'm using caricatures, so don't think that I am advocating for this way of seeing the world or people. But essentially what the narrator is saying is, men are behaving like women, and the only woman in the room is behaving like a man. That these men have been emasculated. They've lost their masculinity. So they're behaving like we would expect or how we characterize women to act, which is overly emotional, crying about their problems, hugging each other, saying it's going to be okay. Whereas the stereotypical man stands there, unemotional, impassive, allowing all of this to happen around him, but not allowing it to affect him. So already the narrator is noticing these tropes at play. All of these men have been emasculated. They've had their manhood removed, literally. And therefore, the only man, so to speak, the only person with balls in the room is this woman, pointing out that it's not your testicles that make you a man. It's not the physical things that make you masculine necessarily. We're talking about two different things, biologically speaking versus existentially or ontologically. I peek out from under the armpit of Big Bob. All my life, Bob cries. Why I do anything, I don't know. The only woman here at Remaining Men Together, the testicular, testicular cancer support group, this woman smokes her cigarette under the burden of a stranger, and her eyes come together with mine. Faker. 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 Short, matte black hair. Big eyes the way they are in Japanese animation. Skim milk, thin buttermilk sallow in her dress with a wallpaper pattern of dark roses. This woman was also in my tuberculosis support group Friday night. She was in my melanoma round table Wednesday night. Monday night, she was in my firm believers leukemia rap group. The part down the center of her hair is a crooked lightning bolt of a white scalp. Marla, as he notes, is both very real to him, but also not real, almost a fictional character, which is why he compares her to a Japanese anime. She's real, she's tangible, she's there, and yet not. In a way, the circumstances in which the narrator finds himself, in which he's located himself, are so unreal, so unrealistic, so fantastic, that the only thing that is real in that room appears to him as being unreal and fantastic. He has really no clear anchor to reality, which is why I think the, the conceit of the narrative is we drift back and forth between exposition and inner dialogue, or inner, yeah, inner dialogue. 
so that the narrator is constantly shifting from what he observes to then we're taking inside his conscience to how he's processing this and how he explains it to himself. And of course, as he notes, I've seen her before at all of the other support groups that I attend because we are both fakers. But when I see her, she's the faker. I'm there for legitimate reasons, even though I'm lying. This is why Nietzsche calls love and greed the same. Basically, love and greed are the same thing, or at least they're very closely related. Because one man's love is another man's greed. What do I mean by that? If I own something, let's say, I don't know, because I heard this analogy from someone else. Let's say I, I own a fancy Italian sports car because I just, I like fancy Italian sports cars. So I save up, I buy the, the sports car, it's parked in my driveway. And I just, when I look at it, it just makes me feel good. I just love it. Which again goes to the point of consumerism that we can love things almost on the same footing or even more so than we love people. So we describe my, our love for people the same way that we describe our, describe our love for material goods and possessions, which is kind of the point of this analogy. So I save up, I buy this Italian sports car, it's sitting in my driveway, it gleams in the sunlight, it's beautiful. I think I actually used this analogy in the last podcast on Wednesday. So if I'm repeating myself, I apologize, but it's in my mind, so I'm going to use it again. And then another guy comes along, he also likes Italian sports cars. He sees this parked in my driveway, he comes up, knocks on the door and says, hey, you know what, I love Italian sports cars and that is beautiful, that's a shining example. of an. I, will, I want to buy that from you. And I say, well, no, I mean, that's mine. I saved up for it. I like them too. I love it. So then he's not going to give up. He's not going to quit. So he writes a letter to the car, trying to persuade the car to come and live in his warehouse where they can be together forever. He goes and tries to change the law and petition the government to take the car away from me because when he sees my love for this car that he also loves, his attitude is I'm being greedy. And that I don't understand how much he loves my car. But I look at him and think the same thing. He's greedy. And if we keep it in this context, if I were traveling and I were in another country or another city and I saw that car in someone else's driveway, I would think the same thing if I tried to buy that car from the owner. Why is he being so greedy? How, how is it that he doesn't understand how much I love these kinds of cars, how much I love this car? So depending on the context what we define as love can be viewed by others as greed and vice versa. So the narrator and Marla are both fakers. They're both liars. And yet each sees the other in that light and doesn't see themselves in the same light, which is, well, that's just human nature. We tend to quickly point a finger and judge others for the very same things that we are guilty of. In fact, in a way, it's scapegoating. If I can put my sin on your back and make you carry it away, I don't have to take responsibility for that. I don't have to accept the consequences of those sins. And so in a way then, when we do that to other people, we are dehumanizing them. We are delegitimating them, devaluing them, because we need to use them as an object of our sin, of our desires, of our wants and needs, and because we don't treat them as individual human beings with inherent value in and of themselves, we treat them as products to be consumed. And that's what's happening in this support group. These men who have been emasculated physically, emotionally, and mentally are using each other. They're consuming each other 
because they are consumed by their grief, by their guilt, by their shame. And they're willing participants. They're cooperating in this for each other's benefit. That's how consumer culture works. So when you look at these support groups, the narrator continues, when you look for these support groups, they all have vague, upbeat names. My Thursday evening group for blood parasites, it's called Free and Clear. The group I go to for brain parasites is called Above and Beyond. And Sunday afternoon at Remaining Men Together in the basement of Trinity Episcopal, this woman is here again. Worse than that, I can't cry with her watching. This should be my favorite part, being held and crying with Big Bob without hope. We all work so hard all the time. This is the only place I ever really relax and give up. This is my vacation. Think about that. That's a powerful sentence. The only place I can relax and give up is in this support group, is in these support groups, crying in Big Bob's arms without hope. This is my vacation. What is our life organized around? Work, work schedule. Why do our kids go to school the days and hours that they attend school? So that it conforms to our work schedule. Public schooling is essentially babysitting so that people can go to work and contribute to consumer capitalist culture. If you're not working, if you're not contributing, then you're not a valued member of society. So all of public schooling, all of university education, everything that is brought to bear on us by popular culture has one point. Produce. Work until you die and then someone replaces you at the wheel. Therefore, we work and we work and we work. And what do we work for? Those vacations. Those moments when we are able to, quote-unquote, take time off, use our vacation pay, use up our sick days, to not work. Vacation is not working. And then when we go on vacation, we work to have a good time while we are on vacation. This is why we take pictures and why we take so many pictures. I read a study probably 20-plus years ago that showed the correlation between the number of pictures people take when they're on vacation to depression and anxiety. And the two cultures, three cultures, that take the most pictures when they travel are the Japanese, the Germans, and people in the United States. And then culturally, these cultures also suffer the most from depression and mental illness. And the correlation is you have to prove to people back home that you actually went on vacation and you actually had a good time. So you actually turn vacation into a secondary job, proving that your vacation was worthwhile and meaningful and you had a great time. Because if you don't, well, then what good is it? So that even your vacation becomes a part of the grand scheme of consumer culture. Go on vacation. Well, where are you going to go this year? You going to go back to the same place? Well, no, you can't go to the same place twice. You got to go somewhere new, somewhere different. Why? Because the pictures have to be new and different. I can't just keep posting the same things on Instagram all the time. People are going to stop liking it. And if people stop liking it or less people hit that thumbs up button, I don't get the same dopamine hit that I used to get. So I've got to constantly mix it up, constantly present unique and new content 
that excites and provokes and titillates those who follow you on social media? Why do you think ratings are in the tank for news and for most TV shows and even movies? Because in the past year, people have been forced to figure out what's necessary to them, what's important. And also, in many cases, they just were simply prevented from going to the movies or participating in pop culture. And doing it vicariously isn't nearly as exciting and provocative or mind-numbing as doing it in person. If you've ever watched a concert on TV versus being present for a concert, they're not comparable. That's like watching pornography online and masturbating versus being in an actual long-term intimate relationship with another person. They're not comparable. And the only way that you can compare the two is to dehumanize yourself and others to the extent that social interaction, interpersonal interaction, has the same value as sitting in front of a computer screen alone in your room, passively interacting with fake reality, fake love, fake emotions, fake drama, fake people, so that you yourself eventually become fake because everything you consume is fake. This is why, in my experience, a lot of gyms that claimed to have shut down during COVID were not shut down. They were essentially operating as fight clubs. In fact, there were a couple that were shut down in New York City for that very reason. They were busted with like 200 people in the basement of a building fighting. Why? Because those who belong to a gym, especially a combat martial arts gym, know the importance of that interpersonal interaction, that regular interaction, because it is intellectually and emotionally and physically intimate. And therefore, you bond with those people that you engage in that activity with in such a way that to go without them for any length of time is impossible. And you simply will say, no, I don't care. I'll risk getting sick. I'll risk getting a disease. I'll risk dying to be with these people. Why? Because without them, my life is meaningless. My life lacks something. It lacks intimacy. It lacks a sense of purpose. I don't feel loved. I don't feel like I matter. But when I am with these people who encourage me, motivate me, stimulate me, challenge me, I'm alive. I can see myself reflected back from them toward me and vice versa. And therefore, the more intimate the relationship you have with others, the more likely you are to rebel against someone or some group saying, well, you're not allowed to interact with them anymore. You're not allowed to do that with them anymore because it's not safe, it's not healthy, it's not good. Well, as the man said that I saw on Instagram the other day, I went to the doctor and he diagnosed me with CFS, which is why I can't wear a mask. What is CFS, you ask? Common fucking sense. Open your eyes, observe reality, observe your environment, observe the people around you. Who's dying? How many people are dying? How many people who trained in private got sick with the virus of unknown origins? How many people that did get sick were brought to the point of death? And how many recovered in two or three days? How many of us, by using our reason and senses, by simply observing reality with our eyes, recognize this is the flu. It might be our virulent form of the flu, but it is the flu. 
And therefore, we refuse to shut down. We refuse to be dehumanized, to be ostracized and isolated from our brothers and sisters, from our teammates, from our comrades in arms. We refuse to listen to the rhetoric and the propaganda because we can observe with our eyes and use our brains to think for ourselves, to ask serious questions, to go out and do our own research and gather together data and use CFS to realize something is amiss. And therefore, what is most important? What is it that I need more than anything? I need simple human interaction with those who are like me, who struggle with me, who carry me and walk with me, who motivate, provoke, encourage, excite me. And if you don't understand that, it's probably because you don't have those relationships. And therefore, I would urge you, seek them out, go find them. So the narrator continues, I went to my support group two years ago after I'd gone to my doctor about my insomnia again. Three weeks and I hadn't slept. Three weeks without sleep and everything became an out-of-body experience. Having experienced that myself, that is 100% true. My doctor said insomnia is just the symptom of something larger. Find out what is actually wrong. Listen to your body. Exactly. Everything that we are sold by these multinational corporations is poison. That's a scientifically provable fact. The drinks that they sell us are poison. The food that they sell us is poison. They're injected with hormones and steroids. They're irradiated. They're GMO. They're genetically modified. We know for a fact that these things were gonna, are going to kill us. We know what makes us obese. We know what gives us diabetes. We know what messes with our brains and contributes to Alzheimer's dementia. Everything around us that we're sold actually kills us. And by participating in this sick, nihilistic, fatal consumer culture, we are made into nothing by the things we consume because the things we consume are nothing. They are simply poisoning us. They're killing us because we don't matter. If I die because I eat too many Fruity Pebbles, there's someone else waiting in the queue to buy the box of Fruity Pebbles that I dropped. They get us addicted to their products, which is very simple, actually, because they spend billions of dollars to figure out the proper food additives and mixtures and chemicals to get us addicted to those products. It's the Hegelian dialectic. They get us addicted to the product, then they offer us some solution to get unaddicted to their product. Here, here's this drug that will help with your kidney problems. What's that? This drug makes you impotent. Well, we just happen to have another drug that helps you with your erectile dysfunction. What's that? This drug that we gave you for your erectile dysfunction is messing with your blood lipids, messing with your adrenal glands. Well, we've got a drug for that too. So now I had a kidney problem. Then I had an erectile dysfunction problem. Then I had an adrenal or a blood lipid problem. Now I've got a brain fog problem. I've got an insomnia problem. I'm hopeless and sad and depressed all the time. Don't worry, we've got drugs for all of those things. I think I mentioned it before, but back in the early 90s, there was a, a show called Kids in the Hall. It was a Canadian show. And it's on YouTube. You can watch it. I find it 
to this day, terribly funny. It's also a really radical show, actually, for its time, revolutionary. And they made a movie then called Brain Candy, which is about this, that this company invites, invents a drug that'll make you happy. And of course, everyone gets addicted to it, but then they discover you can never not be happy. You can never not stop taking the drug because, well, you're happy all the time. And if you're not happy and you're not smiling all the time, there's something wrong with you. So even people that want to get off the drug can't get off the drug. They can't stop being happy. So people are committing suicide because they can't stop being happy and smiling, even when they're terribly sad and depressed. And so, yeah, go check it out, Brain Candy. It's a good movie. Slightly dated, but Idiocracy is slightly, slightly dated too, and Idiocracy is like a reality TV show at this point. Well, it's got, carb- it's, it's, it's got electrolytes in it. What's an electrolyte? Well, that. I know that, but what is it? Well, it's this. Well, why, but why are you drinking it? Because it's got electrolytes in it. This is what we do all the time. Well, why are you eating that? It's organic. It says right there on the box, on the box, it's organic. Yeah, so is dirt. (laughs) Well, it's free range. It says free range. Well, what does that mean? Well, uh, it means they're just walking around and and, and then I guess they just, they just jump into the shredder and the meat grinder and then they come out as a patty. We just assume these catchphrases, these, these words that are designed to sell us something that isn't organic, of course, not a completely organic organism. It's genetically modified. It's altered with chemicals. It's processed. We don't know what free range means. I do because I have friends that work at these big chicken farms. Free range just means it died walking from the cage to the feed trough. That's what it means. Or it just died when it was out of the cage. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that they live in like some chicken palatial estate. They don't live like on a golf course where they're fed chicken feed all the time and then they die of old age and then they're sent to the factory to be made into chicken patties. Free range simply means they just died walking around. Usually from the cage to, like I said, the feed. But we're conditioned, we're indoctrinated, we're taught to not think about what we're consuming. Don't read the ingredients on the back of the box. And there's no greater proof of how dumb we've become as a culture, as consumers. There's no greater example to me than the fact that on the back of the box for surgical masks, it says this does not prevent the spread of COVID-19. It's right there on the box. Millions of people have posted that online on social media. And yet, even knowing that fact, even carrying around a box in my car that I can then carry with me into a store and hold up and go see, it says right here on the box, the manufacturer of the mask that you are wearing, that you insist that I wear to prevent the spread of COVID-19, the manufacturer has it on the box, does not prevent the spread of COVID-19. Well, you still have to wear a mask. Why? Well, because the person on TV told me to tell you that. And they're an expert, so ignore the box. Listen to the expert on TV who's a paid political pundit. We're so indoctrinated. We're so dumbed down. We're so much cattle. We're so much slaves that even when it's right in our face, we just look at it dumbly with this glazed over look and say, well, you still got to wear a mask. Why? Well, because Dr. Fauci said so. Okay, but why? When it says on the box that it doesn't do anything. 
Yeah, I, I, I can see that. But, but Dr. Fauci said, they're incapable of thinking. Slave morality is emotionalism. It's nihilism. They believe in nothing except consuming what they're fed, both to their eyes, to their ears, to their mouth. Over and over again, my immune system has suddenly become a conspiracy theory. My God-given ability to fight off infection and disease is a conspiracy theory now. You have to be, well, you just have to be completely dumb to believe that, to just reject thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. But we'll do it. Why? Because nine out of 10 doctors tell us, do this. So we have to do it, right? You don't want to be a diet type two diabetic, change your diet, exercise, fix your life. Or you could take insulin, which doesn't solve the problem. It just masks the problem. But my doctor said, well, your doctor is wrong. <laughs> if your doctor tells you you can't reverse type 2 diabetes, your doctor is a liar. Your doctor is trying to sell you something. Your doctor is getting kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies for getting you hooked on insulin. That's right. I said it. I'm tired of holding back on these things. It's time, it's time to stop being so nice and just being blunt, honest and kind, but blunt. Listen to your body. Observe reality. Believe your eyes. Go with your gut. Stop listening to the so-called experts. Or if you're going to, at least do your own research. Think for yourself. Ask questions. Do your own research. Be informed. Otherwise, you become like the narrator. You just become a zombie. Just trudging through life week after week after week without sleep. Oh, I know you go to sleep every night at 10 or 11 o'clock and you get up every morning at 6 or 7. But are you really sleeping? How long are you in REM sleep? How many times during the night are you disturbed? Do you dream? Do you really sleep? It's like the difference between thinking and thought. It's the same way with sleep. For years, I slept, but I was not engaged in deep sleep. And I could never figure out why I was always so tired. So I would get more and more sleep. I would go to bed earlier, wake up later. Didn't matter. I still would wake up and feel like I hadn't slept because I wasn't actually going into REM sleep. I wasn't in that deep, deep trough where dreaming happens, where you get the most rest, where your body is producing that HGH, which it needs to repair the cells. Same thing. Had to change the bed. Had to change the mattress pad. Had to change my pillows. Had to change the curtains. Had to change the noise. Everything had to be changed so that I engaged in deep sleep. So then I wake up after six hours of sleep and feel more refreshed and energized than I used to feel getting 10 to 12 hours of sleep. It's not the amount of sleep you get, it's the quality of sleep that you get and figuring that out. But like the narrator says, I just wanted to sleep. I wanted little blue amytal sodium capsules, 200 milligram sized. I wanted red and blue two and all bullet capsules, lipstick red second alls. My doctor told me to chew valerian root and get more exercise. Eventually, I'd fall asleep. The bruised old fruit uh, way my face had collapsed, you would have thought I was dead. My doctor said if I wanted to see real pain, I should swing by first Eucharist on a Tuesday night. See the brain parasites. See the degenerative bone diseases, the organic brain dysfunctions. See the cancer patients getting by. 
So I went. The first group I went to, there were introductions. This is Alice. This is Brenda. This is Dover. Everyone smiles with that invisible gun to their head. There it is. How you doing today? Good. Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, that's an invisible gun to their head. That's what that sound is. Every time someone says, I'm fine, they're saying that with that smile, and they're smiling because that invisible gun is to their head. This is what they've been programmed to say. This is what they must say. Why? Because we all know implicitly that that question comes with no invitation to talk about how we truly are. It's a nicety. How you doing? Good. How about you? Oh, I'm great. Okay, great. Have a good day. See ya. Invisible guns to our heads. Indoctrination. Dehumanization. Emasculation. How you doing? Worst day of the month for me. Oh, really, man? You want to sit down for a minute and talk about it? Let's go grab a cup of coffee. You want to do that? That's true caring when you ask someone how they're doing. Versus, nah, just do it. Just play your part. Read the script. I'm fine. How about you? Oh, I'm great. Great. Nothing. Couldn't be better. Oh, awesome. All right. You have a great weekend. Say hi to the wife and kids for me. I will do. You too. Okay, bye. And then we go home. We drink to excess. We over-medicate. We argue with our spouse. We abuse our children. Why? Because we're hopeless. Because we know that our life is meaningless. We have no reason to exist, at least in our own mind. We're not satisfied with our job. We're not satisfied with our spouse, with our family. Nothing satisfies. Nothing we do satisfies. So we medicate because we become hopeless. And we're so indoctrinated, so brainwashed, as I've been saying, that we, we lack the curiosity to break out of the rut that we're in. In fact, I was just reading two days ago that a lack of curiosity is indicative of bad mental health. And I'm still processing that. I'm just throwing it out there for you. I haven't really thought it through yet because I'm still chewing on it. But think about that for your own experience. Lack of curiosity is indicative of bad mental health. When I've been depressed, when I've been the most hopeless, I didn't paint, I didn't sculpt, I didn't draw, I didn't play music. I did none of those things. I simply got up and did what I was expected to do day after day after day. And curiosity was just gone. It was lacking. I didn't care. I wasn't curious. Why? What's the point? If everything is futile, if everything is meaningless, if life sucks and then you die, why be curious about anything? Why try? Why ask questions? Right? So he continues, I never give my real name at support groups. Well, I'm a liar to begin with, so why not just lie about my name too? The little skeleton of a woman named Chloe with the seat of her pants hanging down, sad and empty. Chloe tells me the worst thing about her brain parasites was no one would have sex with her. Here she was, so close to death that her life insurance policy had paid off with 75000 bucks, And all Chloe wanted was to get laid for the last time. Not intimacy, sex. What does a guy say? What, what can you say, I mean? All this dying had started with Chloe being a little tired. And now Chloe was too bored to go in for treatment. Pornographic movies. She had pornographic movies at home in her apartment. During the French Revolution, Chloe told me, 
the women in prison, the duchesses, baronesses, marquises, <laughs> whatever, they would screw any man who'd climb on top. Chloe breathed against my neck. Climb on top, pony up. Did I know? Screwing past the time. La petite mort, the French called it, the little death. Chloe had pornographic movies, if I was interested. Amyl nitrate, amyl nitrate, lubricants. Now, normal times, I'd be sporting an erection. Our Chloe, however, is a skeleton dipped in yellow wax. Chloe, looking the way she is, I am nothing, not even nothing. Still, Chloe's shoulders pokes mine when we sit around a circle on the shag carpet. We close our eyes. This was Chloe's turn to lead us in guided meditation, and she talked us into the Garden of Serenity. Chloe talked us up the hill to the palace the palace of seven doors. Inside the palace were the seven doors, the green door, the yellow door, the orange door, and Chloe talked us through the opening each door, the blue door, the red door, the white door, and finding what was there. Eyes closed, we imagined our pain as a ball of white healing light floating around our feet, rising to our knees, our waist, our chest. Our chakras open, the heart chakra, the head chakra, Chloe talked us into caves where we met our power animal. Mine was a penguin. Ice covered the floor of the cave, and the penguin said, Slide. Without any effort, we slid through tunnels and galleries. Then it was time to hug. Open your eyes. This was therapeutic physical contact, Chloe said. We should all choose a partner. Chloe threw herself around my neck and cried. She had strapless underwear at home and cried. Chloe had oils and handcuffs and cried as I watched the second hand on my watch go around 11 times. So I didn't cry at my first support group two years ago. I didn't cry at my second or my third support group either. I didn't cry at blood parasites or bowel cancers or organic brain dementia. This is how it is with insomnia. Everything is so far away. A copy of a copy of a copy. The insomnia distance of everything. You can't touch anything and nothing can touch you. A copy of a copy of a copy. It's a great song by Nine Inch Nails, by the way. Go check it out. But notice, we begin with Bob and the men's support group. They've had their testicles removed, both physically and metaphorically. So therefore, the thing that identifies a man as a man in our culture, their balls, removed. And therefore, they don't act like men. But then we shift to another support group of women predominantly women. And what is it that's been taken away from them? Their sex appeal, their physical appeal. In our culture, how do we judge women? Well, based on your physical sexual appeal. The number of women that DM me, and of course they're not real women, but the number of women that DM me and try and follow me on Instagram, and then you go check out their accounts. And it's obvious that they're a bot or a troll, or probably some 48-year-old dude in his basement in Poughkeepsie. This is what sells. Because then you go to their page and you look at all their followers. And their page is nothing but butts and boobs. And then, of course, my favorites are the ones with the inspirational quotes beneath the, the see-through lingerie picture that they've taken of themselves in the bathroom mirror. And, or, and, and of course, what's really special to me is when women will pose like topless, and then post a Bible verse 
that has something to do with, you know, God and, and empowerment. You've turned your body into a product that you sell online. You've turned God into a product that you're selling in order to sell your body. You're turning Rumi and his philosophy into a product that you're selling in order to sell your body. But at the end of the day, you have decided that the best way to make money is to sell your sex appeal, your sexuality to other people. And for the right price, depending on the, the, the account, you'll actually come on over and, you know, there'll be a happy ending to this, to this inter, this financial interchange. But this is the thing is that in our culture, then a man is a man until he has his balls taken away. And then what is he? And a woman is a woman so long as she has her physical looks, her appeal. But then what is she? And so in this entire scenario, this whole chapter is simply about, this is what culture tells you you have to be. This is how culture defines you and how you have to identify yourself in relation to others and how others then identify you. Are you sexually attractive? Then you are a valuable woman in our culture. If you don't believe this, look at celebrity culture. What is key? How many women do you know? Let's go back. So when I was growing up, you look at the, the actresses of my generation that were considered the sexiest people alive by People Magazine, for example. Where are those women now that they're in their 50s and 60s? Very few, if any of them, are making movies regularly. They're no longer the femme fatale. They're no longer the sex object. They're usually someone's mom or grandma. They have a supporting role in the movie. Or they go off and make independent movies that nobody watches because they're, again... There's none of the pop cultural appeal to them. But so many of the actresses of my generation of the 80s and 90s are just gone because they lost their physical attraction, at least in the minds of the producers and directors and so forth that make movies or TV shows. And so unless they're willing to get plastic surgery and spend thousands of dollars a month on cosmetics and stylists and all these people that keep up the appearance of youth, their value to Hollywood is next to nothing, zero. And therefore, the cardinal sin in Hollywood for a woman is that you lose your looks. We can't sell this wrinkly, sun-dried tomato-looking woman, right? Maybe if we have some movie where we need like a grandma or it's a movie about old people in a nursing home, We'll have, a, we'll have something for you. But as far as being the star of this movie, no, I'm sorry, we need the new, we need the newer model of you. And we've found her. So you've been replaced. Again, we've found a new blonde-haired, blue-eyed bombshell to replace you. So therefore, you move out of the way and we're just going to replace you with her. And people will forget that we've done this because we'll just keep repackaging it. We'll keep selling them the same movie or TV show over and over and over again. And every generation will treat it as if this is the first time this has ever happened. Consume, digest, forget. But what about men? What do we do about with men in our culture? Well, up until very recently, in the last 10 years or so, when a man lost his masculinity, when he behaved in a less than masculine way, when he lost his balls, we treated him as, again, disposable, as not important. So you think of 
well, you know, he's not, you're not being a man. Man up. You got to man up. You got to show up for your family and you got to show up. You got to be a man. You got to do manly things. Because if you don't, what value are you to us? Which is ironic then, because of course, like I said in the last decade, emasculation has become basically a virtue in our culture. Toxic masculinity is a byproduct of a select group of people, a very vocal minority, screaming loud enough to convince other people that it's true that men are toxic. Masculinity, manhood is toxic. And we have to get rid of it, starting with our kids. So we indoctrinate our boys. And we teach them that you don't have to be the gender that you were born with. You can be whatever gender you want. You can identify however you want. But for God's sakes, don't be a white heterosexual male. Key word there, heterosexual and male. <laughs> because this isn't just unique to Caucasians. This is across the board. Friends of mine that are Latino or Mexican, friends of mine that are black, friends of mine that are Chinese and Japanese from South Korea, they all experience the same thing as men. Your whole problem is you're a man. You need to be less like a man. You need to be softer, more effeminate. You need to be more emotional. Do things that are quote-unquote manly today, not things that have been manly for thousands of years. That's, that's all evil, bad stuff. Just do the stuff that we've told you is manly in the present tense. Why? Do we care about you? No, of course we don't care about you. Do we really believe in this philosophy that we've adopted? No, of course we don't. Well, then why are you doing it? To sell products. That's why we're doing it. That's why there's a counter term called get woke, go broke. Because we recognize that this woke culture that's being propagated by these corporations, by these sports teams, by these celebrities, it's all to sell a product. They don't really believe any of this stuff. They're whores. They're prostitutes. They're being paid to do this. They're soulless. They have no integrity, no moral compass, no ethics. They say whatever they're paid to say. They do whatever they're paid to do. Because for them, being famous is more important than being a human being, being moral, having integrity and courage. That's consumer culture. People are not only the consumers of the product, people are the product. Actors are always acting, whether they're on screen or off, they're always acting. So when they sit there in the, those interviews and they cry about, oh, I was discriminated against, in, you know, when I got married to Harry and the queen didn't like me because I'm 124th black, she's acting because she's an actress and she's being paid to do it. They're all acting all the time. And they teach us then to act all the time. Because we're told, be more like them. Be more like the person on the screen. Look, your favorite actress is endorsing that product. You need to buy that product because you want to be like her. Hey, look, he's endorsing that car or that truck. And he's your favorite actor. And he's a man's man, so you need to buy that truck too. Think about how dumb that is. How mindless and thoughtless that is. How much that plays into slave morality and herd mentality. Don't think for yourself. Don't care about the gas mileage of this truck. Don't think about the fact that this person's a paid actor. Buy the truck so you can be like this guy. Drink this alcohol so you can be like this, these people and have these kinds of friends. Consume these drugs because, hey, look at this guy that you grew up watching on TV. He's telling you this can help you. It's all lies. It's all just designed to brainwash you into believing if you consume the product, you could be a person that you're not because you should hate the person you are. 
You're incomplete. You're imperfect. You're flawed. You got things that need to be fixed, and these people are here to help you fix it. Maybe. Or maybe they're paid actors. Maybe they don't care about you at all. Maybe everything about them is a lie. Everything about them is a production. So let's get back to Bob. Then there was Bob. The first time I went to testicular cancer, Bob, the big moosey, the big cheese bread, moved in on top of me, in remaining men together, and started crying. The big moosey treed right across the room when it was hug time. His arms at his side, his shoulders rounded, his big moosey chin on his chest, his eyes already shrink-wrapped in tears. Shuffling his feet, knees together, invisible steps, Bob slid across the basement floor to heave himself on me. Bob pancaked down on me. Bob's big arms wrapped around me. Big Bob was a juicer, he said. All those salad days on Diana Ball, and then the racehorse steroid Wistrol. His own gym. Big Bob owned a gym. He'd been married three times. He'd done product endorsements and had I seen him on television ever. The whole how-to how program about expanding your chest was practically his invention. Which, of course, is ironic then that he's got bitch tits now. Strangers with this kind of honesty make me go a big, a big rubbery one, if you know what I mean. Bob didn't know. Maybe only one of his huefos had ever descended, and he knew this was a risk factor. Bob told me about post-operative hormone therapy. A lot of bodybuilders shooting too much testosterone would get what they called bitch tits. I had to ask what Bob meant by huevos. Huevos, Bob said. Gonads, nuts, jewels, testes, balls. In Mexico, where you buy your steroids, they call them eggs. Divorce, 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 Bob said, and showed me a wallet photo of himself huge and naked at first glance, in a posing strap at some contest. It's a stupid way to live, Bob said, but when you are pumped and shaved on stage totally shredded with body fat down to around 2%, and the diuretics leave you cold and hard as concrete to touch. You are blind from the lights and deaf from the feedback rush of the sound system until the judge orders, extend your right quad, flex and hold. Extend your left arm, flex the bicep and hold. This is better than real life. Fast forward, Bob said to the cancer. Then he was bankrupt. He had two grown kids who wouldn't return his calls. The cure for bitch tits was for the doctor to cut up under the pectorals and drain any fluid. This was all I remember, because then Bob was closing in around me with his arms, and his head was folding down to cover me. Then I was lost inside oblivion, dark and silent and complete. And when I finally stepped away from his soft chest, the front of Bob's shirt was a wet mask of how I looked crying. Everything about this is tragic. Everything about this is meaningless, hopeless. Everything about this could have been prevented by making a different choice. And yet they, like us, allow themselves to be rolled up in this consumer pop culture, devoured, and then cast aside. So that even our own family, our own children, only view us in terms of the amount of money we're bringing home. In terms of the material benefits we offer them. And then in the end, when we're no longer able to provide that for them, 
we are deemed in unvaluable rather than invaluable. We are deemed in a negative, we are seen in a negative light. We are deemed unworthy of their love and affection. Because as Nietzsche said, materialism leads to nihilism. Materialism, basing our identity in material possessions, will eventually lead us to believe in nothing. Because as the narrator began, none of this is going to last. Everything you can ever accomplish will end up as trash. Anything that you were ever proud of will be thrown away. The survival rate for everyone drops to zero. Eventually, everyone you love will reject you or die. And we come back, and that's not even the end of the chapter. I will stop there because I'm already going along. Everything in this narrative at the, at the outset, the setup to the narrative, is to prepare us for the arrival of Tyler Durden who comes in and says, you have agency, you have a choice. And the choice must be to reject consumerism. You must reject a culture that dehumanizes you, that emasculates you, that says you are your breasts. You are your physical attributes. You are your testicles. You are your sports car, your bank account, the way you dress, your hairstyle. You are all these things. And integrity, courage, practical wisdom, justice, truth, true love, beauty, these are not important. These are not values that you need to inculcate. These are not virtues. These are vices. These are things that will get you off the path, separate you out from the herd. They will make you sad and depressed. So stay away from those things. Stay away from thinking for yourself. Stay away from making your own choices. Consume, digest, forget. Let us tell you what is right and what is good and what is beautiful and just and true. We will take care of you. We have only your best interest at heart. Thank you for shopping. Come again. So that's all I got today. That's the beginning. A Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. I think we're going to have some fun with this one. So if you're following along, you want to buy the book, I started on page 16. Otherwise, I'll wrap it up here. I'll come back next Wednesday for the midweek debrief. Otherwise, thank you so much for everything you do to support the show. As I said at the beginning, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. See you later, weirdos. Peace.